Hello, and welcome to the Right Around the Murray Festival 2021 program, which has been reshaped for online presentation. My name's Heather Sirovic, and I'm the co-owner of Dimmicks in Albury, and I'm talking to you from the Albury Library Museum here on Wiradjuri Country, where we pay respect to Wiradjuri elders past, present, and emerging. A big thank you to all of you who were tuned in. We truly appreciate your support of the Right Around the Murray Festival and of literature and storytelling and the arts more broadly. We're thrilled to be able to present this session, Pip Williams in discussion with Margaret Hickey, and we thank them for coming online with us. It's my pleasure to welcome Margaret Hickey, who is an author in her own right and has a great new novel out at the moment called Cutter's Edge. Great to have you with us today, Margaret. Thank you, Heather. Before I hand over to Margaret to introduce our guest author, I'll let listeners know that you'll be able to type questions for the panel at any time using the chat bar on the right side of your screen, as long as you're logged into Google. Margaret will come to your questions at the end of the session. Enjoy the conversation, everyone, and over to you, Margaret. Thank you. And what a joy it is to be here at right around the Murray 2021. Welcome everyone. This is going to be a brilliant discussion. Well, Thomas Keneally said that there will not be another, another book like it this year. I just know it. It's been described as a lockdown sensation, quietly revolutionary, timely and timeless. And that quote by Geraldine Brooks, no, no less. It's won the 2021 Indie Book of the Year, the winner of the General Fiction Book of the Year, the Australian Book Industry Awards. It's won the People's Choice Awards at the New South Wales Premier Literary Awards. It's been shortlisted for the Christina Stead Award and the Walter Scott Prize. It's been a bestseller and it's much loved. It's sold well over 100,000 copies and now has found its way overseas. It's captured the hearts of people world over and certainly those of us on the border. Welcome Pip Williams, author of the Dictionary of Lost Words to write around the Murray 2021. Welcome Pip. Oh Mark, what a lovely introduction and Heather and everybody. Um, I, I have it in my diary that I'm supposed to be there tonight <laughs> at Dimex having an in-conversation with you, Marg, and it's, it's a terrible shame not to see everybody face-to-face, -face, but um, a real privilege that we can actually do it online. So I'm really, really happy to be here. And can I just also acknowledge that I'm coming to you from um, Paramount Country, that's uh, the land of the Paramount people of the Adelaide Hills, and I wrote a lot of this book on this land, but also Ghana country, which is uh, the Adelaide Plains. And we're talking about words today. And I think a lot of us around this country understand that it's it's first people's languages that really are the devastation in terms of lost words. Um, and, and many languages are being reclaimed as we speak tonight. So, um, yeah, I'd like to acknowledge that. I read something, it's really interesting you say that, Pip, and, and so important, and I read something today, something really wonderful about the Noongar language in South, as we know it, as Southwestern Australia, and how that language is being revived and is really vital. I think it's that's wonderful to hear about how language evolves and, yes. and that sort of thing, isn't it? Yes, yes, and how it can wax and wane and, you know, yeah. 
it's it's a renaissance, I think, for for a lot of Indigenous languages. So it's it, which is wonderful. Well, talking about um, a renaissance and evolving, I'd like to hear more about your own writing life, Pip. So. I know many writers started writing as, as young kids, as young children or letter writing. Can you tell us a little bit about your early writing life and then perhaps even a bit about your travel and how they've inspired you? Oh, absolutely. And all of the above, really. I did write as a child, really dreadful poetry mostly, um, <laughs> and a lot of letters. I was a, I've been a letter writer all my life. I still am, in fact, and I have um, people I write to, well, one person in particular in Canada, and, and that's all we do. We try never to use social, you know, um, email, and we just write handwritten letters. Was, to was this a pen friend? Was this a pen friend? No, she's, she's someone I met travelling in Ireland, yes. and uh, we, we clicked, as you do, and started writing before email existed. Mm. <laughs> and then and we just kept writing and we love it. But as a child... Um, I did love writing, uh, but and I've mentioned this before, but I'm dyslexic and um, obviously I've been dyslexic all my life. So I actually did have a bit of a love-hate relationship with uh, words and dictionaries, mm. ironically, um, because I really couldn't spell and my handwriting was quite poor. Um, but words and writing was how I needed to express myself, uh, mm. which was maybe bad luck or good luck. I don't know. But, I think perhaps um, it was good luck. <laughs> and I was lucky because my parents just didn't really care that the the words were spelled incorrectly and they just loved that I was writing poetry as, as a lot of parents do, you know. Um, and so I wasn't discouraged from writing even though I didn't uh, technically execute it very well. But, yes, I wrote all through my childhood really, um, and until, you know, I, th I think a lot of children love doing things that are creative just for themselves, and that's mm. why I wrote. Um, mm. And then as soon as it becomes something that is performative, something for mm. other people, I think that's when we sometimes stop doing things. Mm. Um, and I published a poem. My very first publication was a poem when I was 15. Can you remember it? <laughs> In Dolly magazine. I can remember the beginning. It can, you goes, can you can you recite that oh, poem for us? How embarrassing! Oh, come on. Okay, it was very imaginatively called Fifteen, and I was fifteen. And Mum and Dad had said I wasn't allowed to go out, and so I I wrote this poem, and it starts. Fifteen is an age of just in between. No immature habits should ever be seen. No alcohol served at your table at night. Don't act like a child. You're in people's sight. Act like an adult or go to your room, dot, dot, dot. It keeps going. So it was, you know. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, what a thrill, Pip, for it to be published in Dolly magazine. I know. I, I know. I probably read that poem and it would have really resonated with me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a classic. I still, by the way, I still wasn't allowed to go out, but mum and dad yes. were very proud of the poem and said, oh, why don't you, why don't you see if someone will publish it? And, and someone did. So um, that was, that was the beginning and end of my writing career for about 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and is what brought you back into your writing career, would you say, the inspirations from your travels, particularly in Italy? I think, like I said, I, I, writing was how I expressed myself. So even though I stopped, I didn't sort of, 
pursue a writing career. I didn't think of myself as a writer. I mm. still wrote all the time. I wrote mm. in a diary. I still wrote bad poetry. Um, I did start one or two novels as a teenager and they were all of them. Every single one of them was just puberty blues, you know, mm. reshaped, rehashed, mm. repackaged. Um but I never thought about being a writer. I just did other things. I did the sort of things that might be expected of you. I travelled a lot. I I wrote a lot of letters. Um, but the creativity thing, I think, stays with you. And if you don't honour it, it starts bothering you as you get mm. older. And that's what mm. happened to me. So, you know, I, I actually ended up having a, a career as a um, social researcher um, yes. and academic and um, and that became more and more dissatisfying and as it became more and more dissatisfying that creative urge became louder and louder until I couldn't mm. ignore it anymore and mm. in fact going to Italy um, traveling around Italy with my family for about six months as willing workers on organic farms that that deci the decision to do that was really all wrapped up in, in a kind of depression that I wasn't writing, um, although I couldn't articulate it at the time. But the fact I wasn't writing was making me dissatisfied with all the things I was doing. And, and so we went to Italy as a kind of, you know, um, a kind of restart. And you went with your whole. You went with your whole family. Yeah, took the kids out of school and, and quit our jobs. Um, you know, someone rented the house, all of that sort of stuff, and 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 we travelled, and we we lived poor, and we worked hard, and mm. we worked out. In a way, it was a journey towards what we wanted to do, um, mm. though we didn't really know it at the time. Um, and I and that was my first book, yeah. And so that was my first creative um, non-fiction book, um, which is this one here. Yes. Um, one Italian summer, and and it was a wonderful um, apprenticeship, really, for creative writing. I had to unlearn how to. I had to unlearn academic writing. Academic writing is very particular, and yes. it's the opposite to engaging creative writing. So, mm. <laughs> um, and that was a wonderful way to learn how to write. Not not just the words and the sentences, but sitting down on your bum and doing it, knowing that. It may never be published, knowing that it may never be of value to anybody but you. It's that's the hardest part about writing, I think. But but it's such it must be such a freeing process to feel that to think, okay, I'm going to write something like this, and I'm not going to worry about the. I'm just going to write it um, to feed this creative urge. That must feel felt like freedom in a way. It it Did does. It? Yes, it does. And but it's also a rod for you. It, it's also. Um, demanding because it calls you to account it's it's mm. this all you know for 30 years there was that little quiet knocking saying hey I'm still here you know I'm still mm. here sort of satisfy my creative urge mm. I, I want you to acknowledge me and I ignored it but once you open the door to it and you say come in you are then responsible for it um, mm. and so leaving work going to Italy and then deciding after that to write one Italian summer, in a way, once I started, I had an obligation to that mm. creative 
uh, to the creativity. I had an obligation to that story I wanted to tell and an obligation to myself, I suppose, to see it through. And like any obligation, sometimes you um, really don't feel like doing it. So, you know, it, it was like anything else. There was a lot of procrastination. There was a lot of... Yeah. Um, it's work. Yeah. It's work. Yeah, yeah. Um, I found that much harder to write, in fact, than the Dictionary of Lost Words. That's been... That was a joy. I I loved sitting down to that every day. It didn't... It didn't... Yeah, um, it wasn't a hard thing to do. Reads, I think it reads like that, Pip. Oh, um, you know, from the from the very first, and, and I almost, and I want to say scene because it's so um, it's so beautifully evocative of the little girl of Esme sitting under and the, and having read um, Aladdin, and then the word comes fluttering down like a flying carpet gently under the table and lands in her, you know, the, the curtain of dust. It's 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 um, it, it does feel like a scene. We we can we can really picture it. And, oh, thank uh, you. Yeah, I'm so glad you fed your creative urge, Pip. Um, so we get to, so we get to, sort of jump into it a little bit as well and share it with you. Thank you, Mark. That's lovely. I think, um, Pip, I came to your book in a really um, terrific way because I was reading reading The Surgeon of Crowthorn, and then yeah, and that yes, I was reading it, and um, and I was loving it, and then a friend said to me. Um, read this new book that's just come out um the dictionary of Oz, and i got it and it was like this perfect you know perfect companion that allowed me to see deeper or or, or to to seek a different truth in a way um would you please talk to us about your relationship or your response perhaps to Simon Winchester's work? Oh yes I mean it it was essential um mm -hmm. I would never have written the dictionary of lost words if I hadn't read uh, this book, which is why I always have it next to me mm. when I'm talking about my book because mm. um, I read this a few years, uh, many years ago now um, and it was it's a fascinating story. Many, many people have read it. So um, it's nonfiction and it's mm. an account of the relationship between James Murray, who is the editor of the dictionary, and one of the people who sent in slips of paper with words and examples of how they'd been used in text. Um, fascinating story. But by the end of it, once the story faded from my mind, the thing that stayed with me was how the dictionary was put together, how it was compiled. And as a social scientist, my brain immediately went to whether or not the process was valid, whether or not the process was appropriate for the goals of the dictionary, which were to um, uh, to the the goal of the dictionary was to record every single word in the English language, past and present. So even words that were no longer in use, they wanted to um, document them and define them. Mm. So that was their goal, but the way they went about it was flawed. This is this is the conclusion I came this to, the, and this is the academic in you, isn't it? Yes, yes, that bit because was this is hardly peer review. No, I I had absolutely no intention or thought of writing a novel about it. I was hmm. just curious, and curiosity is where novels start, of course. That's where anything interesting starts, and I was curious about what does it mean 
for the dictionary. And this is, when I say the dictionary, this really is the dictionary. This is the beginning of all the dictionaries we have on our shelves now. Oh. And it's it's even more important because it's a history of words where most dictionaries aren't. They're just, they give you the contemporary meaning of a word, but this gives you the um, examples of how words have been used throughout the history, the textual history of that word. And that's the important bit. What I realised was not only were all the editors men, all the lexicographers were men, most of the assistants were men, though there were a few women working on the dictionary, daughters and wives essentially of the editors. Um, most of the people, but certainly not all, of the people sending in examples of how words were used were men. Um, but most importantly, a word could only get in the dictionary if it had been written down. And this was a Victorian era uh, endeavour up until it, the final words were published in 1928. Up until that time, the majority of the writings that you might find in the library or on bookshelves were written by men. Mm. There was also high levels of illiteracy up until, um, you know, up until the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and essentially the only people writing anything were educated middle class and upper class people, mostly men. And... Mm. It occurred to me that the data set <laughs> was biased towards men and educated mm. men at that. And so I wondered, you know, if, if men weren't in the birthing room, if they weren't in the scullery, if they weren't at the, you know, down the mines, if the people writing books weren't in these situations, how could they possibly know what words were being used? Mm at those times and is it possible that we've lost words because mm. they were never written down because they were spoken by the wrong types of people um and that was my curiosity and then i i had two questions if you know does it matter that the english language has been defined by men mm. do words mean different things to men and women essentially and mm. if they do then it must matter that the language was defined by a certain mm. group of people. Yeah. Mm. And, and that's really apparent in your work, Pip, how men and not only men and women but how different classes as well, mm. and we talk about class, it's a, it's, a, it's a funny thing to talk about class, but certainly at those times yeah. in England it was a very class-defined and yeah. arguably still is probably, but how people how those different people saw those words. And that comes across um, in a fascinating way when Esme and Lizzie, of course, are, are in the marketplaces later on in the book yeah. talking to the women. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah, whole language, it's like whole, there's whole other languages, isn't there? Oh, there are. And sometimes mm. it's the same language used differently. You know, mm. so that's so Esme came across words in, in my novel. What I did was I decided the way I could answer this question, because I actually Googled it, <laughs> I did try and satisfy my curiosity simply by going to Google and finding out, um, <laughs> you know, have words been left out of the dictionary mm. that were particular to, to women? Uh, mm. And I really couldn't find anything that that's answered those questions. And so I decided to explore a possible 
answer. And mm. the way I did that was to put a little girl under the sorting table mm. of the aquarium where all of the words were being defined. And mm. I would follow her as she grew into a woman and mm. see how the words that were circulating around her all the time, mm. how mm. those words affected her and how she might affect the words. Um, and that was really what I started with and, and how I decided to explore it. So I've really woven that fictional character through the real history of the Oxford mm. English Dictionary. For me, it was really important not to change anything that, mm. that I knew was a fact. And when I say fact, I mean indisputable. So certain words were published at certain times. Um, certain words were defined in certain ways in the dictionary. So I don't change anything like that. Um, I tread very lightly on the real people of the of the dictionary in terms of putting words in their mouths. I, I try to stick to the character that um, I've gleaned from the history because the men in particular are in the history books. <laughs> There's a lot written about James Murray in particular. The women, it was harder. <laughs> Well, but it was harder, and and this brings me on to a really nice to, to my next question, and that is to talk about the two the two beautiful characters of Esme and Lizzie mm -hmm. uh, as friends, as um, well, one a bond made to the other, perhaps, yes. and uh, lifelong. Um, in a way, Lizzie sort of uh, is the carrier of, of words or the keeper in a way, and. I'd just like you to talk, please, about that because I felt in the journey that the um, Esme went through with the suffragette movement and all that sort of thing, you were really speaking in a way for all women in England, in England, I, I hasten to say, mm. at that time or in London perhaps at the time. Can you speak to those two characters and their relationship, Pat? Yeah, uh, no, I'd love to. Lizzie is probably my favourite character. Oh, she's beautiful. Um, I... I love Lizzie dearly and um, it's interesting how these things come about even though I, I did have a general idea of how the whole book was was going to go. But as you start writing, you know, things become more important or less important and mm -hmm. storylines, you know, take their own kind of path. Um, Esme doesn't have a mother, which was really important for everything. Nothing could have happened really if she had a mother because she would have had a very different life. She would have been looked after at home for a start mm. and not gone to work with her father. And because her she language was, may have been different. That's right. Uh, exactly. Because in mm. fact, the words of the scriptorium are kind of a surrogate. Um, she, she turns to the words for advice, mm. like some children would just ask their parents. She asks the words. Mm. Um, but because she comes to work with her father, who's a lexicographer, and that was not unusual, by the way. James Murray had 11 children and all of them spent time in the scriptorium helping out with words and so on. Um, but because she was there, she couldn't be in the scriptorium all of the time. She was, she was small. So the maid from James Murray's house is charged with looking after her as well. And she, you, you described her as a bondmaid. She was a literal bondmaid in that she was a servant in the house. And in those days, she was also an orphan. So in those days, um, children who went into service were practically slaves in terms of they were bonded or, or they belonged to that house. 
because they had no safety net. They had no family. They lived in, everything was provided for them. Um, in some ways they were, um, you know, there were social shackles that kept them there. Uh, and so Lizzie sort of represents a, a Victorian-era bond maid in a literal sense. Mm. But as you said, she was also a bond maid to Esme. So she yeah. was bonded to Esme yes. in so many different ways. Um, mm. They were each other's closest friends mm. and yet there was a big class difference which meant that they existed in the world very differently. They had different expectations placed on them and they both knew that in a way mm. and they lived up to the expectations that were um, made of them. Um, for me, Lizzie, if, if Esme's story is the story that lies between the lines of the Oxford English Dictionary, Lizzie's story is the story that in a way lies between the lines of my book because my book is Esme's story. And Esme is a middle-class woman. It's the story of the suffrage movement and the suffragettes. These are middle-class activities on the whole. Um, the suffrage movement and the suffragettes were on the whole middle-class women. The suffragettes in particular, in the end, um, and I'm talking about the WSPU, Emily, Emily Pankhurst's group, in the end they were willing to... Um, sacrifice the vote for working class women in order to get it for educated and landed women. And that's what happened. So, um, you know, so I'm telling a middle class woman's story in a way. But of course, it's not just a women's class, a, a working, a, a middle class woman's story. It's every woman's story. But I couldn't tell every woman's story. And so Lizzie is there in a way as a representative for the working class. But I didn't want to explicitly tell her story. Her story is told really in the space between Esme's story. So um, we only know um, we only know things about Lizzie that are important for Esme mm. in a way. Um, but we can glean the rest. Um, we, we can. can. And uh, I, I was, am I right in saying that they're probably only six to eight years apart? Is that right? Yes, they're quite close. They're only yes. eight years apart, although as would have happened, Lizzie has such a hard life that mm. she may seem 20 years older yeah. than Esme, yeah. Mm. Mm. And how she speaks. I love when she goes into the marketplace, her language and her demeanour kind of changes and Esme yeah. is the one on the back foot. I thought that was really clever how you did that, Pip. Um, but, yes, those two characters I think really, and Lizzie for me particularly, um, I felt a bond, if you like, with Lizzie. I really, I really loved Lizzie and yeah. Esme too. <laughs> I want to um, speak about an aspect of your writing, Kip, and I don't know if you'll agree with me on this, but this is what I thought. When I looked at your writing, I thought there was, a, it struck me that there's a beautiful restraint to your style of writing. So, uh, for instance, when Esme experiences bullying at the boarding school, or you could have really, um, you could have been quite explicit about that. Mm. The same goes for grief and, and for war, for World War One. Um, you could have been, but you, but you hold back, and it's this beautiful um, restraint, which, um, which is really seems to me quite a dignified way to write about these things, oh. and perhaps all the more compelling because you did it that way. 
can was that a conscious decision or is that how you've always written perhaps Pip? Um, it was conscious mm. uh, it is the way I've always written but it was also mm. conscious and I I have thought about this a lot because um, when you get somebody to read your work you, you get a few people to read your work some will say I want to know what happened to her at boarding school oh. or they'll say I want to know um, <laughs> I want you to write the sex scene for instance oh. I, want, I want it explicit <laughs> um, for me the reason I I don't tell you everything or the reason I don't write it all out is because there are some emotions or experiences that I think are much more affecting when you imagine them. Um, mm. So we could sex is a really easy one to talk about, but so is mm. grief um, mm. and so is trauma. I can't, I would never be able to um, describe a sex scene in a way that will really make you emotionally engaged in it because mm. what, you know, what I think is sexy and what you think is sexy mm. is different. Mm. I don't presume to know what you mm. will be really engaged with. The mm. same with grief and the same with trauma. Um, everybody's experience of these things are incredibly personal and with when I'm writing something like that, I like to leave enough room so that the reader fills in the gaps with their own experience and emotional um, reaction and intelligence, if that makes sense. Mm. I don't need to I don't need to be explicit um, about the series of or the process of something mm. or the series of events um, that lead up to something because a reader, has enough experience to fill that in themselves. Mm. So for me, it was really important not to give too much information because then I could really deaden a scene for some readers. I could yeah, really ruin it. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. And um, and I think I wonder if that's one of just one of the many many reasons why this book has resonated so strongly with readers is that there is a deep respect for the reader you're not telling us how they moved how they did this how they did this who did this what to whom we're left to imagine and you're giving you're giving us that gift back to us and i think it's um i mean it was it, it reminded me of um geraldine brooks of course of the oh, writing of geraldine brooks and I can't tell and, you what oh, oh, it really did. And, yeah, congratulations for that. Yeah, thank um, you. <laughs> because in some ways, Pip, I think it would be easier to go all out. I think it would be easier to explain what happened um, at, at boarding school and to explain the other horrible. But um, you've, you've left that to us. And yeah, it, yeah, it can be. And I suppose there's a little bit of a difference between, say, a sex scene and um, what happened at the boarding school hmm. one of the reasons I didn't want to go into what happened at the boarding school there were two things very often when you experience that kind of a trauma your reaction is to not talk about it and to not kind of um, dwell on it in in that kind of way so for because this was Esme's story and it was first person um, it was really important in a way for her story to reflect the reality of how she would have been feeling about something and she wanted to put 
the boarding school experience. She wanted to bury it. And so to, to sort of bring it up to, to make it explicit mm. wouldn't really have suited her the real experience of it. And it mm. comes up in little tiny fragments as trauma does. You know, you get triggered by little things. And so that's when you find out a little bit about what might have happened. Um, the other thing was the scriptorium was her place. It was the scriptorium was where her story takes place and not boarding school. And so I didn't want to dwell on yes. boarding school. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. The scrippy. I mean, the scrippy. Marg, you've frozen. Yeah. Sorry, could you say that again, Marg? You've just frozen for the moment. Yeah. Um, so the scrippy is where the action takes place and where, where, we, where, where we get that real sense of joy and love of words. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you to back to Oxford and how you, um, how you walk the streets of Oxford and how you look at you read old dictionaries and how you, how you immerse yourself in the content mm. of what you are writing about. Can you tell us about You've just frozen, but I think what you're asking is about the research that I did. Um, and, yes, like you, like you mentioned, I went to Oxford twice. I was um, given full access, in fact, to the archives of the Oxford English Dictionary, which was just extraordinary. Um, and that included all of the slips of paper that those words and sentences that I was telling you about were um, written on. Um, it also included proof pages of the dictionary. Uh, it included letters to and from James Murray and, and um, from other people, including Edith Thompson, who is in fact a character in, in the book. Edith Thompson was a woman who volunteered uh, to work on the dictionary, first sending in slips with words and sentences, but she also did proofreading and editing um, and all sorts of investigations of words, in fact. And she worked on the dictionary from the letter A to the letter Z. So most of her life she spent helping with the, the dictionary, but she was barely um, acknowledged for her work in the history. She was acknowledged in the dictionaries. Um, at the front of every dictionary, there is an acknowledgement of the main contributors of words. But she's, you can find hardly anything about her in the history. And so I decided that I wanted to make her a character um, in my book. And I wanted to give her her real name because for me it was really important not to exclude her again from um, what some people, this is the only thing they'll ever read about the Oxford English Dictionary, and it was really important for, for me to know that people knew Edith Thompson's name. But because she was, um, I'd fictionalised her life to some extent because she becomes Esme's godmother, and because of that I get Esme to give her a nickname, and that nickname is Dita. So whenever she's referred to as Dita in the book, that's a, a sort of indication that that part of it is fictional. But when she's referred to as Edith Thompson in the book, that is part of the history. So I think we're having a few technical problems. We're trying to get yeah. Mari back online. 
I'm Mark. very happy to keep talking. If you want to just put me on full screen, okay. I, can, I can go through some of the history, the historical That's a great stuff. idea. Yes, thank you yeah. very much. When Mark's ready, just drop her in. <laughs> so it's just you and me now, everybody. <laughs> um, so we were talking about the history and I've got so many, I've actually got a few things I can show you. So when I was at the archives, like I said, they had boxes and boxes of slips of paper with words and the sentence underneath that gives you a sense of what that word might mean. And right at the beginning of the book, one of the things that um, was a catalyst for this book is a true little bit of history. And that bit of history is that the um, word bondmaid had gone missing Ooh. from the Oxford English Dictionary. And no one knows how the word bondmaid went missing. So I investigated this. It's a complete mystery. Um, and so that's why I made my character Esme steal it. And so that's where the book starts. You talked earlier on, Marg, about that word falling in her lap. It's not a spoiler. It happens in the first few pages. So that word is the word bondmaid. And so now I've explained forevermore how the word bondmaid went missing. <laughs> but when I was in Oxford, I actually asked, could I see the slips? Did they exist? Because they did, because the slips themselves weren't lost. It was the top, well, in fact, the slips and the top slip were all misplaced, let's say. But it's the top slip that had the definition that was written by a lexicographer. That's the thing that was lost back in. So when they got sent, so Pip, so, Pip, when they were sent in, it was my impression that they were, because it really is fascinating. <gasps> yes! Is that what so this is, looks like? No, yeah, these are photocopies. I'll put them close oh. to the screen. So this is a, a quote from um, Walter Scott, Lord of the Isles. It's a Bond-made mm. quote. Um, and how, this is another one from Shakespeare. Yeah. And so if you actually look at the dictionary today, the, um, the second edition and the online edition, they have these exact quotes as part of their um, history of the word of bond, the word bond made. But this dictionary next to me, which my partner gave me for my 50th birthday. Oh, wow. This, this is a, a first edition volume of A and B. And I can assure you, it's a, when it's I a, it's a first edition. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So this is this is what they were working on. So this is this was published in 1888, um, and so it's you know it's how old is that? It's like what is the first word? What is the, what is the first word in that dictionary? Can we open it up and see? Let's open it up. <laughs> so the very first word, I, I can tell you what it is. It's a. As in up. And how is that defined? Well, I'm going to hold it up because you won't want, you will run out of time. <laughs> this is just the first two pages of the word up. So this My is how good that's why That's why we've only got two letters <laughs> in this huge volume. They... They want, like I said, they wanted to record every sense of every word, past and present. Now, in the end, that was impossible, and there were a lot yes. of words that they left out on purpose. And you know, we can talk about that if you like. I came across a few of them, 
And I also, when I went to the archives, I had access to the proof pages. So they would they would print these out and then edit them. And so I had access to pages where I could see that words had been crossed out and one of the editors had written beside it, excise, so get rid of. And sometimes those words were women's words. And on the same page, so one of those words is the word literately. Mm. It, it almost made it into the dictionary. It means um, to write something in a, in a literary way or a literate way. It makes literately. Literately. It makes perfect sense. And, in fact, it was um, put into the dictionary, I think, in 1991, but it took that long for it to get into the dictionary. Um, I, I can't, for teenagers, it doesn't have the same ring if they say literately. Yeah. Well, I suppose if you put it in. Literally. Well, that's a different word. So literally means, we all know what literally means, but to do something, to, you could say, oh, the letter was so literately written. <gasps> do you see the difference? Yes. Anyway, and it makes perfect sense. And you can imagine so many times when you could use it on the you same. Could use it. Yeah. It was crossed out. And so it didn't get actually into the dictionary for decades. Um, and it was originally coined by a Mrs. Griffith uh, back in the 17th century in a novel, in fact. And that's how she was, in, in fact, referred to because they give you the word, they give you the meaning, then they give you a sentence that it's been used in and who, who wrote that book that it was found in. So it was a Mrs Griffith had written a novel and so she used a word, if Mrs. Pip, if Mrs Griffith's word was not counted, would yes. she have received a letter to say, I'm sorry, the word's not, or would it just, it's gone? Oh, no, 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 no. So Mrs Griffith was an author. She was a novelist. Yes. Um, so she was dead. <laughs> she was long dead because oh. she wrote the book 200 years earlier. Oh, okay. Um, uh, no, no, no one's consulted about what words that mm. go in other than the lexicographers. But on the same page that um, that word existed was another word by Coleridge and that was literata. And I, it's, this is in the book. I've sort of fictionalised this, yes. um, this whole thing. Because literata is defined as a literary lady, um, and on the and not far <laughs> after that, it is, literary ladies need their own word because there are so few of them. This is you know this is what Edith Thompson says in my novel. Um, whereas literati is literary people. So yes, why okay. do and so the assumption is that the literati are men, even mm. though the definition is literary people. And that women need their own, their own word. Now that it's, word, yeah, that word stayed in, but nobody uses it anymore. Nobody. It's just fascinating, Pip. We're getting quite a few questions, and I'm conscious of the fact that we may not get through them all. And I want to have people to have the opportunity to ask these questions to you. Um, Laura, are you happy to answer a few questions now, oh, Pip? Yes, I'd love to. And then I've got a few more things I want to chat to you as well. But Lauren asks. I would be interested if, Pip, you had a language that you're familiar with. I, I assume she means obviously aside from English. Are there words that are important to you? Uh, the answer is no, I can't speak another language. I've tried to speak um, Spanish. 
and Italian because we yeah, did Italian once in Italy. My partner is extraordinarily good at learning languages. Some mm. people are. Um, yes, they are. Yeah. Is and, your and partner I, a musician? Because don't no, isn't that the general tenet that music people and mm. yeah probably no he's not he's just I just don't know what it is he did learn Indonesian and French at school mm. so he had an mm. understanding of grammar and I think this is it I think people who learn grammar properly no matter what language it's in they can then transfer those skills uh, yes. to other languages um, anyway so because he learned he picks languages up so well I I didn't pick very much up at all when I was in Italy because he did all <laughs> walking <laughs> and I'm the opposite I don't pick up languages very well um yeah so I'm, I'm afraid I don't have languages that another language except that I did write a little bit about Esperanto in in the dictionary of lost yes. words mm. um and Esperanto is a really interesting language because it was designed it was designed as a language of um, yeah. community. It was meant to bring people together, mm. um, and and yet it, it didn't. Um, no. But I, I I use that language for various reasons in the book. But it was actually a specialty of one of the real lexicographers who was working in the scriptorium and who Esme, um, you know, obviously uh, yes. had had interaction with. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Pip, I have another question. This one's from Rex and uh, Rex says, I'm so pleased you confirmed your intimate knowledge of the surgeon of Crowthorne as, uh, as I had read it before reading, the, before reading Dictionary. So Rex was like me that read the two. Yeah. And Rex asks, do you feel like the two texts now, oh, this is an interesting question, Rex, do you feel like the two texts, Pip, create a whole it is an interesting question, and you you sort of alluded to it a little bit, Marg, earlier on. What and and in fact, I've I've spoken to Simon Winchester. He interviewed me for um, a festival in Dallas. Obviously, <laughs> we were in separate countries. Um, we had a fantastic conversation, and it was so oh, I can nice. Imagine, yeah, I was so nervous, so nervous. Um, because <laughs> because I do talk about his book and. And he agreed that um, in his book he he didn't think about or talk about the women who might have been part of the dictionary. Mm. Um, now, we don't know much about the women, but there were women involved. Ada Murray, for instance, mm. who was James Murray's wife, he could not have done what he did and what he did was extraordinary. He couldn't have done it without her. No. Um, she was an incredible support for him. Um, James Murray's daughters, three of his daughters worked in the scriptorium and two of them for about 40 years of their life. Other editors, their wives and daughters worked um, with them as well. And when I say worked, I, I mean it. They were paid workers. They weren't mm -hmm. volunteering and just supporting their husbands. They were working women. Um, I, I I think I'm, I'm a bit reluctant to say that they, they can be companion books because I have so much respect and admiration for The Surgeon of Crowthorn. But what my book does, I hope, and what I wanted it to do was to tell the story that is 
between the lines of mm. all of these history books. So, mm. Rex, if you think that it is a good companion, I'm flattered. That is exactly, in a way, what I wanted it to do. Well, I think Simon Winchester writes uh, has written about your book, hasn't he? Didn't he? I think I, he's yeah. he's got a cover on one of the editions on the, on the cover. Does, yeah. um, and he said, he said something really funny, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, um, Pip Williams has gently wrapped me over the knuckles. <laughs> Oh. For, for you know, for but it was um, gently for, though, very gently for Lee, and mm. and he said, and he took that, and he took it. Um, yeah, he took it kind of. <laughs> he took. He it sounds well. like a pretty generous man, actually. Yeah, he is. He is. Mm. It was terrific to meet him, actually. Yeah. Well, that was. Thank you, Rex, for that terrific question. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask uh, too about, um, and we we talked about it a little bit at the start, Pip about how it's getting very I'm getting very dark here aren't I I might have to move over um you look great, uh, oh good um I wanted to ask about how language is always evolving we've talked about that and how that uh, language waxes and wanes. how important is it then that we document words how I mean if a language is going to die or if a word is going to die how important is it that we document it or is it just a natural progression that things are going to change. What's what's your view of that, Pip? Well, my view is very strong because if if I can imagine <laughs> if the Oxford English Dictionary hadn't been written, if those words hadn't been documented, I would have had a very poor understanding of how the words had evolved and mm. how they evolved is incredibly interesting. So. Part of my research for this book was to spend hours at the State Library of South Australia where they have a full set of the first edition, Oxford mm. English Dictionary, which is 12 of these massive volumes. Got in Adelaide? Yes, and it's oh, stunning. Oh, how wonderful. What yeah. a brilliant library. It's mm. really beautiful. Mm. Um, and, and what I found was I would go and I would look for a particular word that I was interested in. And I'd, I'd look it up, and this is the other beauty of doing it with a real book and not online, because I'd come across all these other words I'd never heard of before mm -hmm. as I was, you know, running my finger down the columns. But often I, I would find the word um, that I was looking for and it would send me to another word. And then that word, I would look at all the sentences through history and, and see how that word had changed over time as well. Or I would find that one word, and I when I showed you the pages for just that word ah for ah, it was it's many many pages, and other words are like that as well. And I had no idea sometimes of how many meanings a particular word might have, and all of that research fed into my story. Mm. One of the things that was really important for my book was also that when they were defining the language between 1857 and 1928, they couldn't help but include their judgment of things in the definitions. So we think of these books, dictionaries, and I'd say the same about encyclopedias and so many other, you know, um, reference books. We think they're completely objective. We go to them because we think they're, they're the arbiters of truth. And in fact, they they are as um, fallible and as easily biased as any other work um, 
And the dictionary has this in black and white. So there are words in the dictionary that I came across. For instance, a really benign word in our, you know, today, which is pants. So, you know, I wore a pair of pants to work today. In the Oxford English Dictionary first edition, pants is defined as a vulgar abbreviation of pantaloons, mm. uh, mainly used in America at that time. The fact they wrote vulgar is telling me a little bit about the person who defined it Absolutely. Rather, than, rather than the people who use it because I don't think the people who were using pants were being vulgar when they were using mm. that word. But the educated upper-class man who defined it thought it was vulgar, in, in, you know, thought that the, the way it had been used in language was vulgar. And that was one of the discussions back then. Should we include words that we don't want people to be using? That we don't These want were, people. Absolutely. Now I'm paraphrasing. So, but I policing, so they wanted to police how the population was speaking and some communicating. People, mm. Some people did. Um, and so there are letters showing this. Um, but James Murray on the whole was incredibly um, scientific in a way. He had a, he had a criteria of inclusion for words. And as far as he was concerned, that was their job was to record every word. Um, at some point he was criticised for, for using quotations from newspapers, particularly tabloids um, oh. like Daily Mail. Yeah. I think the Times was okay, but not the Daily Mail. And <laughs> and his argument at the time was this is the most up-to-date um, version of the word. So he acknowledged that the English language was and a dictionary was only ever going to be playing catch-up, that it, it as soon as it was printed it was out of date, that there was likely to be a new way of using a word. Um, and from the very first publication he started to collect slips of words that would go into a supplement so he always knew that the language was continually evolving and today the argument would be around do we use Facebook and Twitter as um, as evidence yes. of how words are used and I I don't personally use Facebook and Twitter but I would defend their use in defining our language because yeah. they are the most up-to-date version of how mm. we use words mm. but what I would also say is let's not lose the history of those words either mm. you know we must always make sure that we understand where those words have come from because that tells us where we've come from actually mm. it tells us a little bit about how we as humans and as a society have evolved yeah, and how we interact with each other and um, and class as well, and so yes. and it's it becomes political in a way too, doesn't it? Political and social. Totally. I, I was going to ask you an alternative. Racist comments. The first edition yeah. of the Oxford English Dictionary. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Um, Pip, I was going to ask you, and this is really quickly because Paul and Susan have wonderful questions too. I'm always interested. One of my grandparents would say, one of my grandfathers would say, what's for pudding? For, for, and then the other one would say, the other, my maternal grandparents who lived in the Western District would say, um, what is for dessert? And then <laughs> other people say, um, sweets. And yes. I think all of those, I'm always interested in what type of, you know, or, or afters. Um, you know, yeah. that, think, 
words like that do you think are, are interesting? You know, I don't know whether you've yeah. ever come across that. Mm. Oh, I have, yeah. And, in fact, I had to grapple with it too a little bit in this book because um, uh, there are some words that are used in some parts of the UK but not in other parts of the UK. Uh-huh. And, of course, yeah. there's dialect. So the Oxford English Dictionary also did include dialect words that mm. were common in right. in and had been written down, of course. So right. there's quite a lot of Scottish words in mm. Scottish dialect words in the dictionary, and I suspect that's because, um, you know, of Walter Scott and and there's yes. there's you know, so many writers who had used the vernacular of the places mm. where they were from, uh, and so those words got in the dictionary. But mm. like I said, Walter Scott used those words because he he was a particular kind of writer, but mm. other other sort of words that are in a vernacular of a certain group of people were never written down and so they didn't get in. And so there's, you know, there's this sort of unfairness in a way uh, yes. around how the words were recorded. Yeah, the, the power, who has the power of the words. Um, but, exactly. Pip, I've got some wonderful questions. Oh, this is a great one. Oh, Susan, yes. Um, Susan says, I'm always attracted to um, a book's cover. Oh, you know what they say about that, Susan. Um, but, but Susan says, did you have a say in the graphics on this book cover? Um, I did. And she also says she loved the book. But oh, it is you. a particularly beautiful cover. Did you have a say in it, Pip? Yes. Um, normally an author doesn't have much of a say in the cover or the title. The title is what the title was as my working title. So the title is exactly uh, oh, what I wanted it to be. Yeah. Yep. Um, but covers are usually left to the the publishers and the designers for really good reason. Um, they they know what they've done the research. They know what people are attracted to. They they know the market that they're pitching it at and all that sort of thing. But they had actually a bit of trouble with this one, and so they did ask me um, to contribute my ideas and so on. And to and together we came up with this well the designer came up with the design based on some of the things I I thought were important to the story um including the poppies so there's the some poppies, symbolism. of course yeah there's yeah. symbolism in there that doesn't give anything away but um you know d- does put you in a particular era mm. it is yeah. a beautiful cover uh Paul now Paul asks Pip you mentioned James Murray's 11 children being closely involved. Can you share why you decided in literary terms not to include those especially female children in your story? But but you did actually pip them too. There are yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. So all of the uh all of the children who actually worked in the scriptorium mm. are in my story. So mm. Ross Frith Murray, uh Elsie Murray uh, mm-hmm. They both worked in the scriptorium for about 30 or 40 years um, mm. and they are quite prominent in the book. Mm. Uh, and, I like them, and I like them in the novel too. Um, I yeah. like their presence. Yeah. It's, um, and it's hard. It was hard to write about them because I don't know anything about them um, mm. because there's nothing written much about them. And mm. so I, I had a few bits of information and I, I have to... Essentially, my um, philosophy is just to be respectful and not to judge. And so I didn't turn, obviously, 
it was not my intention, desire, and I think it would have been the wrong thing to do. I didn't want anybody who was a real person in history to become a villain of any kind, for instance, mm. because they were real people, they had real relationships, they have ancestors, children, grandchildren. Mm. That's not my place. And we know um, that that can be really damaging because that has happened with other... With other yeah. yeah, and so my desire, I had to have these people in the story because they are the real people of the dictionary story. Um, and so I... I relied on the few bits of information that I had and then I fleshed them out um, as as kind of benign characters mm. so mm. that, yeah, so that they're, um, yeah, I just had to be respectful of who they were. Yeah. Yep. Real people. Yeah, they're real people. Um, Pip, we're going to have to wrap up soon, but I wanted to ask... Do you have a favourite word? Well, <laughs> one of my favourite words from this book I probably can't, shouldn't say. I, I never know yes. whether I'm allowed to say it or not. Um, but I do. Bond maid is a bit. There are a couple of words in this book that have their own storyline. Bond maid mm. is one of them. Um, the C word is the other. And I yes. have to admit, I love that word when it is used. Um, yes appropriately and with its original meaning mm. um but one of my favorite words which is in the book is knackered uh which is right yeah yeah which mm. is a word that's not it was not in the dictionary um but there's no doubt it was used and it means to be so worn out like you know like a horse that is good mm. for nothing but a knackery essentially and it's a really working class word it's, it's a word of people who do physical labour. Mm. Um, but there are a whole lot of words, uh, actually, that there's there's another word, I think it's um, slummock. Slummock, it's it's a, an old word which isn't used, wasn't used even when the dictionary was compiled, but it was included in the dictionary. And it means to kiss um, sloppily. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Yeah, right. and, and you could have written about that in Jolly magazine when you were 13. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. There, there are so many wonderful um Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. And there's a few that have come out in the last couple of years. Like so the you know, anthropause, which is this period wherein because of COVID, where it's this it's the um era of human, it's a human pause, and yes. this this idea that um, because of COVID, everything has slowed down to some extent. Mm. They're calling mm. it the anthropause, so I quite like that as well. Uh, well, Pip, thank you so much for taking the time um, to talk with us today, and. We're sorry that we couldn't meet with you in person. Oh. I hope at some stage, perhaps next year, maybe we will or sometime in the future. And I'm really excited to hear about your work and what you're going to do in the future because we've just really been given a gift. It's it's honestly helped hundreds of thousands of Australians <laughs> through lockdown and your book couldn't have your book couldn't have come at a better time. So oh, on behalf of those listening, and I'm sorry if I didn't get to some of your questions, um, Thank you, Kip Williams, so much for discussing your beautiful book with us today.
Thank you. Uh, thank, thank you, Marg, for wonderful questions and everybody who's tuned in for your questions as well. It's been such a pleasure. And I, I wish I could have been here <laughs> to chat to you in the signing line. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, ladies. That was a really insightful conversation. And it really brought the book back to life for me, Pip. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks again for your time and, Mark, for your time. We have both of Pip's books available for you to purchase at Dimmick, so don't be afraid to come and buy them. And I also need to remind you, if you haven't already booked, to head back to the Right Around the Murray website and booking for the Friday or Saturday sessions. Okay, Dimmick's are also offering free delivery in Albury and we have a pickup point in Wodonga if you wish to purchase Dictionary of Lost Words or Cutter's End, please don't be afraid to be in contact with us. Thank you again, ladies. Thank you to the audience who joined in. And Pip, maybe with another book, we might get you over here for a live. I hope so, yes. I'd love to. It'd be wonderful. Thank you yes. so much. Thank and you. goodbye, everyone. Thank Bye. you, Heather. Thank you, Pip. Thank you. Bye. Hi. We can talk now. I've just got to have a wrap.